refreshing for them to see. He turned and said to them, You don't think I'm keeping this kind of living just for myself. I'm giving it to anyone who wants to come and follow me. And he called them disciples because they understood they were learning from him what they were so drawn to in him, his mercy, his compassion. These weren't things he was keeping a secret to himself. He was giving it away to anyone who would want to be his follower. And we're shocked as we read the Gospels about who all got in that doorway of disciples. There were all kinds and types of people you and I would qualify. And when he got them close to him, he began to spend time and time again, all of his parables, not all of them, but a lot of them had to do with the pictures of the kingdom of God. He wanted all of his disciples to know that the kingdom of God was now available. It was on the earth. And we've been spending time in our conversations here about Jesus' call isn't for us to die so we can come be with him in heaven. It's to realize he's bringing all of the kingdom of heaven down here on earth. And now, now we're beginning to live here now by being his kind of students, his followers. I was in a coffee shop, one of my favorite ones in San Francisco. I go there because they have the best morning buns. They're delicious. And they have community tables there, and I got in early. The guy sat next to me, and he had a, a book that caught my attention. It said, Best Buddhist Writings for the Year. It was blue, blue ink, and I went, Wow, I got the red one. I just bought the red one last week. The red one says, Best Christian Writings. I go, it's kind of interesting. You got the blue one, I got the red one. And he goes, Yeah. And I go, well, how's the blue one? I'm liking my red one. And he goes, well, you know, I'm looking into it. I go, well, why, why are you reading about Buddhist writings? I'm interested. And he goes, because I'm looking for peace. I said, well, that's, that's a good reason to be reading it. I said, frankly, that's why I'm reading my red one. And he goes, yeah, I know about red. I go, you know about red? We're using this red and blue talk for code. It was really kind of fun. He says, yeah, I kind of grew up with the red people. Ah, so you know us red people. But you bought a blue book. Huh. I go, look, I'm going to go speak to some college students and I would be interested in what you would describe red people to be like. And he goes, you really want to know? I said, I would really be interested in what you think Christians are like, if you wouldn't mind telling me. And I got a little napkin and I kind of waited for him. And he put his head down and he said, well... You know, it's just my experience, but man, are they judgmental. And my heart kind of sunk when I start to write Jay, you know? And he goes, and really narrow. I mean, rigid. They all have to think alike. And they think everybody else is wrong that doesn't think like they're thinking. He goes, I'm sorry to tell you this. I go, no, no, bring it on, man. Bring it on. He got through this little list, and I looked at those, and I thought, wow, you know, those words that describe the red people really aren't anything Jesus was like for the people that met him. How is it that so many of us who are reading the red book and who are going by the Christian title need to re-meet our Jesus and become like him again? I found myself confessing. Gandhi was clear when he said, you know, you red people would have India on its knees before your God if you would only be more like your Jesus. We've switched to an important question at the fork of the road where somehow we've done something other and we're 
we're known for things that Jesus was never known for. There's a fork in the road, and I think where the fork started is when we switched an important question. And the question that we've, that we've learned to ask each other is the question, are you saved? Now, as soon as I say that, I almost sound heretical to even ask if we need to change that question, because that seems like it's such a necessary, basic question. Are you saved? I mean, that has been the number one question we Christians, we red people, have had to answer in order to be with the red folks. I mean, I remember going to that, that camp and hearing that speaker ask me if I wanted to be saved. And I remember my little heart said, yeah! And I remember coming forward and leaning down the altar on that Monday night. I, it happened. You know, and then I remember that happening again on Wednesday night. And then after I made out with somebody, I remember it happening again on Friday night. Because, you know, I had to keep kind of making sure I was part of that central question, are you saved? And then when I kicked the dog one time before, I needed to go back and kind of have that happen again. My Christianity was built around this fundamental question, are you saved? Because in my first talk, I was with you guys saying, you certainly don't want to go where people aren't saved because, you know, they might have rotisseries there. And that would really be a dumb decision. So the key question has been, are you saved? See, And what I'm finding out, now that I'm older, is that we ask all the parachurches in North America, like Young Life and Campus Crusade for Christ, and all the parachurches, and we ask for all the Christian colleges, and then we ask for all of the Christian churches, Catholic and Protestants, to add up their number of people they know that they saved. That they asked the question and people said yes. And we tallied that number. And do you know that everybody in North America has been saved two and a half times? And we're leading the world in homicides, and abortion, and teen suicide is spiking up. We're the well-churched country in the world. We got everybody saved and we got people like Edmund and Coffee Shops moving over to Blue Books because they've seen enough red people and red people living. They've met enough Christians who are saved, who aren't like their Jesus. Oh, can you hear the weeping out of heaven? You guys switch the question. You're not bad. You're just off. You switch the question. Well, what's the right question? We thought it are. Are you saved? And we got everybody saying, well, yeah. What's the question then? And God goes, oh, the question is really clear. It is? What is it? Are you loving? Oh. Are you loving? A young man got his way to Jesus and there was a crowd and he was astonishing people and the guy had enough courage to raise his hand and said, Rabbi, what's the most important thing? And Jesus didn't say, young man, are you saved? He said, you know, I read it like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. On this hangs all of the prophets, all of the teachings, all of the Torah, all of the books of ancient wisdom. They all boil down to this. And our master rabbi teacher Jesus made it stunningly clear. It is all about the question, are you loving? 
Because that would require a relationship with God, transforming your inner being until you naturally become someone who loves the world like Jesus. Wow. So he wants us to hear the question. And he wants us to respond to the question. I had this girl tell me, she graduated from college in the Northwest, then she went and got a, you know, a job. You know where you can get a job. It always seems like you can get a job at Starbucks. I'm not knocking that, it just seems like Starbucks keeps building, and she's at Starbucks, and she'd been raised to share her faith, and she's out finally in her first job from you know, that bubble called college, and she really wants to affect the world, and so she's kind of guilted because she said, Perry, I just, I'm at Starbucks, and my coworkers are around me, and people are in line, and I'm just not evangelizing them. I'm just not telling them about... You know, I mean, I'm not saving anybody. And I, how do I do that now that I'm finally out in the big world? I go, so let me get this right. You've got people working around you making mochas and running on the hot water. You've got people in the line, and you're trying to figure out how to get them saved. And she said, yeah. And I said, I, I, I got a question for you. I'm starting to learn to think this way. Do you want to love them, or do you just want to save them? And she goes, huh. I thought Christians were supposed to save them. I said, I think that's our problem. See, I can't save anybody. God can do that, but through His grace in my life, I can start to love you. I go, how about this? How about you not try to evangelize anybody in line, and I don't want you to evangelize any of your coworkers until you start to love them. And I think Jesus would be just fine with that. Because my hunch is if you'll start to love them, you'll find a way to let them know what it is that God can be and do in their life. See, it's interesting that we have so overly evangelized and underloved our world that people almost run from us when we pull out our red books in cafes. Oh my gosh, got a Christian over a table left. You know, Jesus had the opposite problem. The crowds were so strong and the line was so long. How do we get a difference? We switch the question. So our now, our work is how do we become loving like Jesus? And we don't do that, guys, by trying really hard. Trying to behave differently trying to be better. We don't try. That's willpower. Okay, I heard Barry. He said we need to be more loving. Well, I'll just be more loving. Love flows when the transformation of our own inner life begins to occur because we're learning how to be with Jesus. Love is the transforming work of Jesus within our lives until we naturally begin to love people. This is not a matter of willpower. You don't directly move into the world to love it. You move closer to God so He can transform you. And by being with God, you naturally begin to love your neighbors. You naturally begin to quit hating your enemies so much. You naturally begin to walk a second mile. But you don't say, because I'm a Christian, I'm going to walk a second mile because I'll make you a Pharisee in this very talk. 
I'll externally make you conform to what a Christian looks like and I'll wear you down like that. And in a matter of time, you'll leave your faith because it's just all of your hard work as a bottom line. And Jesus calls these disciples away and says, we've got to be loving, so now you must draw near me. See, now you're starting with me to learn about what grace means. Guys, grace is God acting in our lives to transform who we are. Grace is not just about forgiving your sins. Grace really kicks in after your sins have been forgiven in ways that we've got to experience so that God can transform us as his people. And so when Paul said, I want you to grow in grace, he wasn't talking about going back down and praying again and getting saved again. He was talking about moving on into the kind of life where you're getting your insides rearranged and transformed. See, everybody here has a spiritual formation already going on. And we need to transform that about you. Everybody here has a mommy and daddy and major messages have already been put in your head. Everybody here has a concept of themselves. You, you already have been spiritually formed. That's part of the problem. I have it too. Some of us don't know what to do with Haitians. Some of us don't know what to do with Southeast Asians. Some of us don't know what to do with rich people. Some of us don't know what to do with bad grades. Because we've been formed in such a way that we're up against our very self. You want to know where the biggest mission field in the world is that I'd like to send you to? Your own heart. And until that heart becomes revolutionized and changed, you're not much good for everybody else around you. And that's not to condemn you. I'm just trying to describe the inner work of where grace, letting God act with you, needs to focus itself. Guys, Jesus is waiting to transform you from the inside out. He's not trying to guilt you into loving people around you. Is that computing? This is really important for us to get. Because Christians that are trying to control and manipulate the world around them are driving the rest of us nuts. Jesus had a heart of love in which he naturally moved into the world in compassion and people were drawn to him. And that's the work of being his student. That's the work of grace. You'll need your sins forgiven. He is willing to do that. But it takes just a little bit of His grace to forgive those sins. If you really want to get into grace and God's work and activity in your life, learn to become like Jesus. Saints burned grace like a 747 burns fuel. I mean, really learn to be the kind of person who Jesus was and you'll find yourself really taking on larger quantities of God working in your life, transforming you. So I want to talk real practically in these next few moments about how do we take that kind of grace within to where we begin to be transformed within the inside. And I think Jesus was a beautiful example of doing this. You know, when he went away for solitude, I mean, nobody hardly ever has those kind of verses underlined in their Bible. And Jesus went up to the mountains and prayed. We don't underline that. We have the ones underlined, and Jesus fed 5,000 people. Wow, that's a big one, underline that. And then Jesus raised that little boy from the dead. Wow, that's a big one right there. Then, you know, look, Jesus went up to the mountains to pray. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days fasting. We go, oh, okay, whatever. Let's get to the action again. Um, just look at your Bible and see what you have underlined, and you'll kind of see the Jesus you're drawn to. And hardly any of us have really taken into account the way Jesus fed his own soul, formed his own life and heart with God. 
he knew how to practice and be transformed by God's grace. And see, that's important for you and I because we want to follow him to become like him. But if we're not living the way he lived and practicing the things he practiced, then how is it that we're actually planning to be like him? We're just frustrated Christians with the big Jesus that we simply can't become like unless we were to take his very practices and ways and begin to be drawn into them out of love for him and love for our world. See, it was necessary for Jesus to get away. We call that solitude. Early, when he was just a little bit older than you guys, he took 40 days to go into the wilderness to pray and to fast. Now, if Jesus needed to do that, you know, I might need 41, 42 days. I'm being facetious. Nine times in the Gospel of Luke it says Jesus went up to the hills and prayed. See, because he wanted to. He knew that's where his own heart would draw near to God and God's love and formation would happen within him. And then he could come back out and be the compassionate, loving Jesus into the world. But if we said to Jesus, can we ask you to quit praying and can you still do everything you're doing? He'd say, absolutely not. I remember the first time I filled out my little prayer card. They gave it to me in church. Will you commit to praying for a blank amount of minutes every day? So I got that and I'm like, you know, I'm about nine or ten years old. And I'm going, huh, okay, everybody's filling these things out. Please take the pencil in front of you and the pew rack provided. Fill that out. So I'd heard, you know, you're supposed to pray. So I thought, well, what's a good Christian, you know, how long? I mean, I wonder how long. I kind of want to look over and cheat off somebody like, how long? And I thought, well, you know, I love Gilligan's Island. I'm into that for like 30 minutes a day. So I thought, well, you know, God, Gilligan. I, I should give God as much as Gilligan. So I put 30 minutes down. I thought, no, 30 is pretty big. You know, I could have gone for an hour, but hey, I'm only nine. So I pass your pews to the inside aisle. The usher will come by and collect them in a plate. So I put my 30 minutes every day, the little prayer card in there, and I committed, man, because I'm, I'm one of them, right? I'm a red-letter person. And we're all going home. And so I went home and I started the next day with my 30 minutes. And I had a little clock that I had by my bed. You know, you guys are going to worry about my childhood when you hear this story. And I had this little, I had this little chair next to my clock. And I thought, well, you know, I've seen people kneel. So I assumed prayer position, commando prayer on my knees. And I looked at my clock, you know, and it's like, let's just make it like 3 o'clock. And I went, go. Dear God, thank you for Mommy and Daddy and Benny and uh, Missy and Moni. Um, I looked at the clock and uh, our dog Pierre God bless the dog uh, our missionaries around the world um, I looked at the clock and um, 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 like 28 minutes of um, um how long do you think that lasted for me? I was becoming a nice little Pharisee. I could look at you and go, have you done your 30? I sounded kind of Buddhist because my prayer was mainly, um, um, um. I think that's where it came from for me, um. I mean, how do you do it? Nobody talked to me. I was saved. Oh, my gosh. See, I can tell you the time and the place when I raised my hand and said, I'm saved. I don't know I can tell you the time and place I was led by my own group to say, are you committed to be as loving as you are saved? 
I had one I was saved written in the front cover of my Bible. I know the date. I've never written in my Bible the time I decided that to follow Jesus, I wanted to be full on about loving people and it happened here and now. And then when you do want to be loving, it's like, well, how do you let God transform your life? You follow Jesus into the ways of being formed and transformed by God and we move from legalism and 30 minutes I have to into love for God. I mean, if you would just make a simple offering of, some, of your own time, God would fill it. This is what fasting is. Fasting isn't going without food. Fasting is learning how to feast on God. Fasting isn't about saying, well, maybe I can go without lunch and maybe a quick breakfast and that would look real spiritual. Jesus was without food so that He could learn how His own loving Heavenly Father would provide for Him physically. He could be sustained by the God who is always near and around him. Fasting was feasting. That's why Jesus said, look, when you fast, don't do it like all the religious types because you know what they like to do? They like to go, oh, I committed to fasting and it's Wednesday and that's my fast day. So I probably shouldn't schedule too much that day because I'll be pretty weak and maybe I should let people know in an email that I'll be fasting. Yes, I'll send out a group email. Please uh, be tender with me on Wednesday because I'm fasting on Wednesday. And just want you guys to know, it might be a weekday. Jesus said, look guys, when you fast, wash your hair, wash your face, you know, dress up, go out, because you're going to experience the energy of God. See, and in that little practice of just fasting, they weren't becoming a more legal type person. Oh, God must love me more because I fast more. They're actually learning to experience the flow and the formation of God in their own life. See, the greatest mission field you have to work in is your own life and bringing God time and practices and ways that He can appear to you, in ways that He can take care of you, Ben, in ways that He can work with all of us was central to how Jesus became Jesus. He wasn't magical. He was in love with God and wanted to give Him time, solitude. He wanted to give Him His body, fasting. He wasn't trying to be heroic and publicize it. He wanted to play his life before the audience of one, his heavenly Father. And the Father's love for him began to form a love in him that Jesus then could begin to give away to the world. Now you can be creative with these means of grace. The classic ones are solitude, study, prayer. Don't become a Pharisee. However, don't expect God to transform your life without you participating in it. And you've got to figure out where that line is. But I just want to hand it to you. You're old enough to know. I'm not asking you to become a Pharisee, but I'm saying God won't transform your life for you. But you, by His own grace, can be a transformed person of love. I promise you that. But you've got to go into the life of how Jesus lived. And it's wonderful there to find the experiences of God's abundant love and provision for you. I promise you, if you, if you move in any of these ways, God will show up. And some of you have very little evidence of God really working in your life, but you have a really big belief in Him. And I'm saying get practical with it and don't become a Pharisee. You can be creative in this. I had a guy, you know, Jesus said, don't be anxious. How much time do you have? Keep an eye. Okay. Jesus said, don't be anxious. See? He said that really clear. He said really clearly, do not worry. Now, 
Red letter people usually see that and we underline it in our Bible and we go, you know what? Jesus said, don't be worried. And you know what we do with it? We go, that'd make a beautiful cross stitch for the refrigerator. It's so poetic of him. Oh my gosh, let's do a worship song on Do not worry. Do not worry. You know, we got the kids sitting next to us who say, shut up, I'm worshiping right now. Do not worry. And we have that cross stitch. And we have an underline. See, Jesus wasn't trying to be romantic or poetic. He literally meant it that you can grow to become the kind of person that needs to worry less and less and less and less until finally you're done with it. We're talking about being transformed on the inside by God's grace. You can have your sins forgiven and have it written down in your Bible and still be consumed with worry. See, grace is a lot more than just your sins. Grace has to do with transforming your life. So don't worry is about you beginning to work with God. I talked to a young guy, he's got a PhD in this, and he goes, you know, I'm really, I'm really worried. And Jesus said, don't worry, and I want to be his follower. I don't want to be a legalistic Pharisee, but how do I get after that, Barry? And I go, well, let's think about it, Don. Where are you most anxious? He goes, well, it's easy for me, my commute. I hate it. The highway backs up, and I'm like darting in and out, and I'm honking, and I'm giving people that one-wave finger salute, you know? I, I don't like my Christian witness. I'm, I'm anxious. And by the time I get to work, you can imagine... The mentality I'm at work in because I've been on the freeway. I say, okay, you give, me, you give me plenty. What would you like to do with that? Now that God's available to you during your commute. You're like, I haven't thought of that question before. I go, well, let's just think about it. Would you be willing to move in the right-hand lane where it's a little bit slower? Oh, gosh. Right-hand lane driving. I don't know, man. Those people are, I mean, they're losing a good 90 seconds every day of their life. I mean the right hand the right hand lane, that's for the wimps, that's for the people that that's like grandma on the right hand lane, baby. I'm a left hand kind of person. I got an important life. I go, would you be willing to go to the right hand with Jesus just for a week? And just compare right hand driving with Jesus. Besides left hand pedal to the metal driving without Jesus and anxiety eating you up. Now Jesus isn't going to love you anymore if you go to the right hand lane. And he is not against left hand people. But you are getting riddled with anxiety, would you be willing to do something practical with Jesus in the passenger seat and just try it for a week? And so it's fun to see him seven days later. He said, I did it. I go, you did it. Yeah, I'm in the right-hand lane, man. I said, wow, how's the 90 seconds? Are you really missing them? He starts to chuckle. And he goes, no kidding, I'm pulling him to work a whole lot more at peace. Just recognizing that Jesus is with me in the community. And the idea in my life is to be with Him rather than get somewhere fast without Him. And I'm starting to be transformed. I can tell you it's a different week in the right-hand lane than it is on the left. Isn't that cool? You can take anything Jesus said, like learn to bless your enemies, and just begin to say, now, Jesus, how would you... I, I know who my enemies are. How would you begin to work with me so I would have less of a need to curse them? And he might say something like, well, you know, by grace you really can't just begin to pray for them each day. Don't do it like a Pharisee. Just call them up to me and just pray for them each day. It's really hard to pray for somebody over a 30-day period and keep cursing them. It's just really difficult. You almost have to be schizophrenic. See, slowly by the practices of grace, we've become changed on the inside and then we're able to love beyond the pale, beyond people that are already lovable, we're able to begin to move to enemies. 
for being able to, to move into the world of, of, of uh, cultural divides. All the things that keeping our world mad at each other, as followers of Jesus, we begin to display the kind of love that Jesus had because we're with him. Then he's transforming us. In your spiritual gifts, you have Shane. Where's Shane at? Shane. Shane's got some spiritual gifts that I don't have. I'll never have them. There are ways God hardwired Shane, and I love him. See, and if I try to be as good in those areas as Shane is, well, you just find out I'd make a really crummy Shane. I just wouldn't be good. I start with the skin color, right? There's a little bit of difference there, right, brother? And I wouldn't look as good in that hat, right? But I'm talking about some spiritual gifts. That guy's got leadership in him that I might not have in me, see? But I might be really good with kids in the nursery, and I might have a way of loving children that change. See, my job in the kingdom of God isn't to follow Jesus so I can hurry up and become like Shane. I'm supposed to figure out who Barry is and be the best Barry that God would ever make. That, that's my work. That's your work. There's only one you in the kingdom of God, and you're following Jesus. The same way Jesus got to be Jesus is the same way you get to be you. And we're not competing with each other. We're honoring one another. Wow, what great gifts you have, brother. Spiritual gifts are handed out, and you have some, and you have some, and I don't know where Sarah is. And uh, Listen, but we, we all have them. Sydney, you got some? I... Okay. But in terms of character, in terms of spiritual maturity and intimacy with God, there is no limit for you to grow into. I'm not kidding you. Somebody here could be the next Mother Teresa. There is no ceiling to how far you can grow into becoming like Jesus. He's astonishing, folks. Read what he said. We have nothing better in all of literature than the Sermon on the Mount. Watch what he did. Notice his compassion always moved before his power. And he was full of compassion and power. Become astonished with this Jesus again. And listen to him when he says, I'm not showing off. I'm not trying to keep this life to myself. I'm here to give it away. I'm bringing God's kingdom onto the earth and I'm looking for students and people and mommies and dads and teenagers who want to sign up for this kind of life who want to develop ears and eyes that God is right here, not waiting for us to die to meet Him in heaven. And we begin to say, you talking about being saved? <laughs> and He goes, no, I'm talking about being loving. And we begin to move in the transformation of our own lives by taking some simple grace, creative, classical, and letting in these coming months Jesus to change us. And you know our greatest reward to all of this kind of living is the person we get to become. Guys, sin ain't that hot when you compare it to being a transformed, loving person set free in the world. The person you get to become is your reward. I'm seeing you now. I'd like to, just like Don, see you in seven more days. I'd like to see you in another year. I'd like to see you in five years. 
and sit across in a coffee shop with you and say, how's the love flowing in you and through you? And you with great radiance could say to me, I can't believe the goodness in my own life that I owe all to Jesus. Are you a student of Jesus? Or do you just believe some important things about him? Jesus, we ask that as we're sitting here in your presence, that we would sense and feel and know you very, very real and close. And in your own way, you have that ability to be right there with each one of us. And as you ask us to follow you, hear our response. You can say it out loud or just quietly in your own heart. What do you want to say to Jesus as he's looking at you saying, come follow me. Take my love. Take my mercy. Experience my power. Oh, yes. Jesus, take all of us as Christians and as people that have been saved and turn us into lovers of the world. Do that work. Lead us practically into how you want that grace of yours to transform us. Save us from the legalism, but oh God, let us make the effort that is now available to us to become like you. Thanks for raising the ceiling of who we can be. Let us shine like the stars because we're in life with you. And by that, may people know that you love them. In your good name, amen. Go and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You are dismissed.